If you got a Bible, we're in Luke chapter 18. Once again, uh, we'll be reading from verse 9 through verse 14. If you find your place there, we'll read before we begin. Luke 18, verse number 9 reads, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, and one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. We're going to move these out of the way because sometimes I have a tendency of wondering without looking, uh, which is another sermon for another day, but don't do that. Um, it can get you in trouble. I was talking to my niece Lila the other day, and um, I'm always surprised at how coherent and conversational three-year-olds can be, but Lila's been especially blessed with uh, a charmed tongue and personality. Uh, on top of that, um, she had been sick last weekend, and her, her brothers were still sick, um, but I asked her if uh, she felt better, and she told me that she was a little bit better, but her brothers um, still needed, needed some medicine, needed some prayer. Uh, but she told me that everyone kept forcing her to drink this purple stuff, uh, and I don't, I don't know what medicine looks like for kids nowadays. That always was pink and uh, red back in, in my day, but I'm pretty old at this point. So. Uh, but she said she hated it, um, but it made her better, so she kept on drinking it. But her brothers would get better if they would just drink the purple stuff. And I don't think she was talking about grape juice, um, but uh, you never know. I, I remember those days uh, of taking liquid medicine. Um, I can still smell the clindamycin, which is the only thing I could take as a kid because I was allergic to everything else that actually got you better. This stuff just made you uh, feel a little bit better, but it took twice as long. But I can remember every time that I got strep throat, which was a lot as a kid, um, um, having to drink that awful tasting medicine. Um, it seemed like once a month or so. Uh, but it was almost insufferable. But isn't it strange that even when we're sick, We'd almost rather settle for staying sick than taking something that might make us better. As a kid, we hate taking medicine so much. We hate doing anything that might counter the, the sickness that we would almost as soon be sick than do anything that might make us feel better. Now, you know, it's one thing to be stubborn, but it's another thing. It's a whole other thing to counter, be counterproductive uh, against getting well. And, and, and there's something in all of us, I think. And maybe it's just me, and if it's just me, y'all pray for me. But there's something in all of us, I know it's in me, that sometimes, a lot of times, would rather settle for unwell than strive for better. And I, I wonder sometimes, what causes this? Why is this? Why is it almost a part of our nature, right? I mean, can the grief of taking a dose of medicine, can the uncomfortable uh, uh, nature of going to the doctor, of getting a shot, be any worse than the grief of staying sick? or unwell. You know, when we're kids, our nature is so raw, it's so unpolished that we show this clearly. We don't want the purple stuff, right? We don't want to, the shot. We don't want to go to the doctor. We don't want the wound to be cleaned or treated or touched. But when we're adults, we get a little more sophisticated, a little more refined in our defense. And it's not true that we don't want it. Uh, it it's just that we don't have time for it, right? 
You know, as adults, we, you know, it's not that we don't like the medicine or we don't want someone to do this or that for us, but we get so sophisticated, so, so refined in our speech that we just say, well, it's just more complicated than that. We, we just don't have the time or we just don't have the money or we just don't know if we really can do that. And, and, and I've got to say, there's got to be a through line between the excuses we use as kids and the excuses we use as adults because the response is the same, the attitude is the same, and it just looks different in the way it's expressed, right? And I will tell you all day long, there's no connection between my childhood self refusing to take a spoonful of medicine or crying at the mention of a shot. I will tell you all day long, there's no connection between me as a kid not wanting the medicine and me as an adult not wanting to go to the doctor or choosing to nurse a headache or a cold without treating it. But I think if you zoom out 30,000 feet, Someone studying my life would say, I think there's a connection. Someone studying our lives would say, I think there's some sort of relative trend here. And while you may disagree or push back, I'm not trying to persuade anyone. I'm just trying to get us to admit that there's something similar to that kid we used to be that said no. And the people we are now that still say no. Even though we're smarter. And even though we know what we're talking about. In both cases, our answer to getting well is often no. And it may just be a crazy coincidence. <laughs> and even if we've overcome the fear or the stubbornness of taking medicine or getting a shot, this side of us still creeps up, doesn't it? And I'll tell you how. Yeah, I know that's bad for me, but... You know, I ought to quit doing that, but... I probably shouldn't go there. I probably shouldn't take that. I probably shouldn't watch that. I probably shouldn't do that. But, oh well, that's just me. You know, golly gee, all of us housers are like that. We just can't help ourselves. Isn't it true? As kids, we just said no. We didn't really want to give a reason. We didn't have to give a reason because we would just cry and scream until someone quit trying to force us to do it. But as adults... <laughs> We've got excuses, don't we? As adults, we are so quick to say, well, that's just how I am. And I don't think there's any way for me to change. But just because we can't help ourselves doesn't mean that there isn't help out there. You know, every time I read the Bible, every time I open the Bible, and this might just be my experience, but I have a hunch it might be yours too. Every time I open the Bible, every time I listen or read someone speaking on its behalf, I'm always fascinated. I'm always confronted with something so intriguing and so amazing, especially the Gospels, especially when Jesus is teaching or preaching or giving us some sort of example. He always spoke, and the stories still carry his words with such gravitas and such charisma. Every word out of his mouth is so provocative. There's almost no neutral response. There's no shortage of needed grace and truth, but there's plenty of distance, there's plenty of disconnect between the grace and truth that Jesus gives and what my heart is like. That even though he provides all that we need, there's still a disconnect between what I will receive. It's here, there's so much to offer, there's so much available, but we often leave it in the book, we leave it on the table. And I tell you this a lot, even if you're not a Christian, even if you are not a believer, but you're just here seeing what we're all about, even if you're not a believer, if you took the words of Jesus and followed them for a month and made a habit out of them, 
They say 21 days is enough time to get a habit developed. If you took the words of Jesus and you just took his teachings on relationship, finances, his, uh, his addressing of emotions, fear and anger and more, I promise you, your life would see drastic improvement. Even if you did not follow him for the rest of your life, if you just took his teachings serious for a month, your life would be better. And I say this a lot, but following Jesus makes our life better, and following Jesus makes us better at life. It's unquestionable how true this is. It is true and proven as this is, so many of us don't, do, don't seem to take His advice for our lives. As much as we say, this is my Bible and I believe everything that it says, so, few, so often we don't take what it says and apply it. And why is that? I mean... We do want to be well, don't we? You know, something so telling about Jesus' teachings, he always had a way, almost every parable, every lesson, every sermon, he always had a way of reflecting our relationships with God back at us. By, by, by that I mean he always had a way of making us kind of see where we stand with God. We might go into a story, into a sermon, into a teaching, thinking we're this, but after you get out of that story, he has a way of making you think, wow, maybe that isn't right, or maybe I'm closer than I thought. Maybe this isn't what, it used to, what I thought it was. Maybe I've got some learning to do. Maybe I've got something I need to add or take away from my life. He always has a way of reflecting our status with God back at us. He always offered perspective on where we stood, where we trusted, and where our trust was or is. His teachings and words are so sobering, so clarifying, so convicting. I always learn a lot about myself and I will always learn a lot about myself, and I think you'll always learn a lot about yourself when you read the words of Jesus. And I've got to warn us religious types, though. If you're visiting with us today, maybe this will confirm some, some ideas you've had about Christians. But I've got to warn us religious types because people that aren't Christians and people that are critical of Christians might pump their fist and say amen inside um, when, we, when I address this because we religious people struggle with this one thing about Jesus' teachings. We tend to read the Bible, we tend to read the Gospels and learn stuff about others more than we learn about ourselves. We tend to see other people in the stories, but not us. Oh, now, if it's crossing the Red Sea or slaying the giant, we love to see ourselves in those stories, and why wouldn't we? But when you get to the stories that Jesus interacted with people where he often would kind of make things uncomfortable and would often expose things about them that would make kind of, makes the people around them think, oh no, Jesus, did you really just do that? Do you know who they are? Do you know what, person, what, what club they're a part of? Do you know how religious they are? And it's fun for us, isn't it? It's fun for us to read these stories and kind of watch Jesus just kind of burn, kind of, you know, you know, kind of humiliate these people sometimes, right? And maybe y'all have seen, you know, this gif, this, you know, picture that gets shared around. But maybe this is your reaction when you read these stories of Jesus. Um, right? Did he just say that? If, that, if y'all think that's funny, that's okay. But some of y'all, y'all get that. I mean, you know, we read these moments of Jesus telling a Pharisee, putting a Pharisee in his place. You know, just burning a Pharisee with truth. And we're thinking, Whoa! Did he really just say that? And we're just pumping our fist and we're clapping, right? The people around those moments were like, wow, I'm glad somebody finally told that guy, right? 
I mean, when he tells the rich young ruler, when he tells Herod, when he tells Pilate, when he tells Judas, when he tells the Sadducee or the Sanhedrin member, when he puts them in their place, when he walks them back off their pedestal, people are like, wow, Jesus, I, I can't believe it, but I'm so glad you did it. It's the same reason you like watching America's Funniest Home Videos, right? It's the reason why I go on YouTube and I sometimes search people falling off houses. I don't really do that. Lindsay does. No, we did that before. But people do dumb stuff. Have you ever watched somebody like, you know, try to do something, ride their bicycle up their house, and it doesn't work out, right? And you know it's not going to work out. And the reason why someone on the ground was filming it, because they knew it wasn't going to work out, right? And then you see them sliding off the other side, right? And then you pray that they didn't get hurt, but you laugh, right? But the reason why you laugh and the reason why you watch is because it's not you, right? And it's funny. We like to watch other people grovel and be humiliated. And I'm not, you know, saying anything that we don't, we, we don't believe, right? We just don't want to admit it because we're in church, but God already knows it about you. There's not, a secret, not so secret about every one of those passages. We read these and we think, wow, Jesus really told that guy. I mean, remember when Jesus let Nicodemus, left Nicodemus' jaw dropped? When he was telling Nicodemus about salvation and Nicodemus said, I, I don't understand a word you're saying. And then Jesus says this, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? And we're thinking, did he really say that? I mean, Jesus, Nicodemus is one of the guys. And you just told him he didn't know a thing that his degree and his teaching and his training said that he should know. Remember that time that Jesus stood up in front of people that were so, so quick to blame others when they broke the law? And Jesus said, well, let's talk about what goes on in your hearts and see how guiltless all of you are. Remember that time they brought that woman called in adultery and then Jesus just kind of ends the conversation when he gets up from the ground and he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And we're thinking, I can't believe he said it, but I'm so glad somebody did because he really told those people, right? There's that time that rich guy came to Jesus bragging about all the stuff that he'd done for God and how he was so perfect and he never broke commandments and he was just out of commandments to keep because he was so good. And he says, Jesus, I mean, hey, you know, I've kept all the commandments from my youth forward. So what do I got to do to be like you? He's got this smug look on his face and he thinks he's the hottest thing on earth. And Jesus does what he always did. If you want to be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and follow me. And the man held his head down and cried because he was very rich. And everybody in the crowd sitting there thinking, yeah, Jesus, you're our guy. You always put these religious people, you always put these people that think they're better than us in their place. There's that one time that Peter tried to tell Jesus he was preaching a little extreme. He was getting a little personal. But Jesus called Peter out in front of the whole crowd. And Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. And people are thinking, what, what? Because people in the crowd are thinking, Peter, Peter's the guy, isn't he? I mean, Peter's the right-hand guy, you know, and, and, and that's where it gets a little bit uncomfortable because it's a little closer to home. I mean, yeah, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the super rich and the elite... Yeah, we like when Jesus kind of burns them, but Peter's one of us, isn't he? And maybe we aren't so comfortable with that one. Here's the danger in sitting back and always going, ooh, right, when somebody else gets set up and shot down by Jesus. 
Because nine times out of ten, Jesus is making a point that he would like to make to everyone. And be careful if you always sit back and say, this would really set them in place. Because maybe Jesus is actually talking to me and to you. And the temptation is, the temptation is to deflect and defer, but God's intention is that we read and digest and discern and receive. And while it may not be initially comforting, we need to understand above all, when you read the Bible, even when you get into a passage where you think, I don't know if he's talking to me, and if he is talking to me, I don't really want him to talk to me because I don't really want this to be applied to me because I don't really want to do anything that this chapter says to me, or I don't really want to admit that this is actually something I struggle with. I want to remind you, and this is, this is to, to, for your good and because I love you and because God loves you. When you read anything that Jesus ever teaches, Jesus is your Savior and your friend. He never says anything to humiliate anybody, even the Pharisee, even the rich young ruler, even Nicodemus, even anybody that, he, that, he, that deserved to be shot down. He never, ever, ever said anything to anybody that he did not mean in love and in grace and in kindness. Jesus is your friend. He's your Savior. He's God's love made manifest. He's God's grace on display. He's God's favor funneled to you. So if you just approach any given text knowing Jesus is good, He is right, and He has our best interest in mind. For that matter, anyone who was inspired that wrote a word down in the Bible, they have so much to enlighten us regarding what's best for us and what we may first be bitter towards eventually will be sweet and refreshing and reviving within us. This is especially true and necessary and helpful for us to understand our text today because the temptation is to ignore the through line that Jesus makes in this parable. The easy thing to do is brush this off as not applying to us. The thing that the enemy desires for us because he doesn't want, us, doesn't want to see us get well is to look at this text today and say it really doesn't speak or offer anything to me. But in this text, Jesus suggests something so convicting. He suggests that our relationship with others may reflect our relationship with God. And he says how we look at others may reveal where we stand with God. And this is very uncomfortable for us religious types that you know, assemble into our pews and we worship in a very vertical direction week after week after week. But Jesus says something that is so off-putting, that's so jarring. That how we treat each other, how we look upon each other may very well and actually does indeed reflect where we stand, and how we stand with God. And there's something in you, there's something in us that's going to not accept this, but for a minute I want you to at least go along with this theory that there could be something in all of us. Although it's dressed up and better spoken, the thing that didn't want to take the medicine when you were a kid may not want to receive this truth from God. Something so powerful about Jesus' parables and teachings, he goes a step farther. He would always show the connection between where we stand with God and how we treat one another because for Jesus there was this undeniable correlation. There was this obvious connection. For Jesus, our stance with God had this unquestionable impact on our relationships with others. It is just unavoidable that our status with God would roll over and influence our our, our stance in dealings with those around us. Jesus never siloed off our beliefs from our behaviors, and He didn't do it this time. So Luke tells us this parable. He tells us the purpose of this parable in verse number 9. He says, This parable is aimed at those who trusted in themselves and treat others with contempt. 
that trust in themselves and the byproduct of trusting in themselves is that they treat others with contempt. They look down on, they judge, they're arrogant toward, they look as if they're inferior to them. They treat others with contempt because they trust in themselves and not in God for their righteousness. And Jesus connects a horizontal action with a vertical attitude. You see what goes on in this parable? There's a vertical attitude that he's identifying, and he says there's a horizontal action that is connected with that vertical attitude. This vertical attitude that says, I am justified by my own doings, by my own behavior, by my own you know, good works, and therefore I horizontally treat my fellow brother and sister as if they're inferior to me. Something Jesus did a lot is connect the horizontal to the vertical. He did this masterful thing. It would leave people literally astonished. He always connected these two things. Now, something I've got to admit, and I think you would agree with me, if we did not have verse 9, which tells us the meaning of the parable, and we did not have this negative view of the Pharisees that we all have grown up in church learning the Pharisees oppose Jesus, if we were to take this parable and pull it out of the Scripture without the, the verse 9 attached to it, and we just read verses 10, 11, 12, and 13, and 14, we might would have a hard time understanding why the Pharisee was unrighteous. We might would have a hard time identifying the second guy as more righteous than the first guy. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a little boasting, is there? I mean, nothing wrong with being right and pointing it out. There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I'm right and they're wrong, is there? There's nothing wrong with distinguishing between yourself and someone who is clearly inferior and needs to be marked or even reprimanded. I mean, isn't that what religious people should do? Isn't that what godly people do? Identify the right and identify the wrong? And be proud they're not wrong? Remember when you were a kid and you got in trouble? None of y'all probably got in trouble as kids because y'all are so good, aren't you? And I didn't either, so you're in good company. <laughs> Thank God we were not like those kids that got in trouble, right? See what, see what I did there? Going to a dark place, y'all. That's exactly what that parable is talking about. But there was this one time in school. Actually, there was two times, but I'm not talking about the second time because that was real bad. There was this one time in school that I got in trouble. I know you're surprised. Uh, but this one time in fourth grade, um, I, the only mark I ever got, the only strike I ever got against my record, I don't think this went on my permanent record. I hope it didn't. That would be terrible if it did. I'm a little bitter about this, y'all, so pray for me. It's one time in fourth grade, the only time I ever got a mark against me, um, every classroom in Union had this board of shame right when you walked in the door. Um, and you know, Union was really trying to tr crack down on, on, on crime and scandal, so they were really trying to expose kids that were doing wrong. So we had this board when you walked in the classroom and you would get these little um, popsicle sticks if you did something wrong. Um, and at the time, the big crime that Union was trying to stamp out was talking in the lunch line. I know, the worst thing you could ever imagine, right? Talking in the lunch line. I mean, in Union, went, we got so paranoid, the, the school got so upset that they even um, outlawed talking for the first half of lunch. So you couldn't talk for the first half. You had to eat and then sit in quiet until 15 minutes in. Then you could talk, but you couldn't talk too loud, right? And I know, Callie, you're a teach, elementary school teacher, and Caroline is, so I know it gets rowdy in the lunchroom, and I understand rules are rules for a reason. But just let me kind of talk about how bad... My, um, how awful this school, this injustice was, was being spouted out from, from the top down. Um, my, my grandmother worked there, and she even said it was a little bit extreme. 
little extreme. So again, I'm a little bitter about this, but I was wearing my brand new Rugrats watch, Rugrats watch, 1999, so I was right at the top of the fashion trend. Uh, I got him for Christmas, and um, yeah, uh, I got a Mickey Mouse one now, so I'm growing up a little bit. But no, I, I was wearing this Rugrats watch that I got for Christmas, and some kid in the lunch line asked me what time it was. Now, in retrospect, I don't know why he asked me what time it was. It was lunchtime. I mean, you know, it was lunchtime. We were in the lunch line. He knew what time it was. We ate lunch every day at 12 o'clock. I mean, why did he want to know what time it was? I mean, y'all, y'all, you don't know? I don't know. I don't know. It was like 12.05. We walked half a, half a you know, hallway to the lunch run. I never really got along with this kid. I don't really know where he's at right now. If he's listening, I'm, I, I've forgiven you for this, but maybe not. So I'll work on that. But uh, he was just different than me. You know, he liked Transformers, and I liked Pokemon. You know, he played PlayStation, and I played Nintendo. We just were not the same person, oil and water. So I don't know why he asked me for the time, because why would he, he didn't talk to me otherwise. Uh, but he asked me for what time it was, so I told him what time it was. And I thought, you know, nothing wrong with telling someone that asked you the time. Why? You know, nothing wrong with that. So we get back to the classroom after lunch, and our teacher did her routine of handing out strikes because it was a, just a terrible scene at the end of the lunchtime. Everybody got strikes because there was all these loud mouths in the lunchroom. And sure enough, I got one. And the other kid didn't. He didn't. And I cried. I cried a lot. I'm going to cry right now. My crime against humanity was telling somebody what time it was. And after I got got done crying, my defense wasn't that I talked. I talked. I knew I talked. My defense was the entire judicial system of my school was corrupt. It was broken, and it was so out of balance. I mean, somebody needed to stand up for the weak, right? And the oppressed... (laughs) watch too much news but I mean there was so much going wrong in the elementary school I mean there were kids doing drugs no no drugs Uh, there were kids trading baseball cards under their desk writing spelling words on the table right before the test they were playing Game Boy under the table and I get in trouble for talking in the lunchroom and what I did wasn't nearly as bad and I told my teacher what I did wasn't near as bad as what everybody else is doing. I mean, there's this one kid that wrote a short story about me, and he killed me off in the story? And he didn't get in trouble? It wasn't that bad, y'all. I've got, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. But I get in trouble. Justin Hauser gets a strike for talking in the lunch line. And I had a list of people who I could prove were far worse kids than me. And it's still in me to carry around and add to this list. And maybe it's in all of us to always pay attention to the rules everybody else breaks. And I think what Jesus is trying to expose about our hearts in this parable is the reason why we judge others. It's an extension of self-defense. See, when I need to defend myself, I find someone that I can get on, I can stand over, right? Well, yeah, I know I'm guilty, but I'm not that guilty. I know I've been to bad stuff, but I mean, have you seen the bad stuff they did? 
Right? You did this whenever you were in high school and you wanted to go to a party, right? And you've never done anything wrong and your parents said no. And you say, hey, you don't, know, you don't know the bad stuff they've done and that really got you in more trouble because you were wanting to go to a party that that person was at, right? So it didn't work out like you thought it was going to work out. But the point was, hey, I'm not that bad. There's other people that's worse than me. But judging is an extension of self-defense and the only reason you've got to defend yourself is when you don't have somebody bigger and better to defend you. And the reason why we treat people with contempt is because we need to look down on somebody else to make us look better. So you think of this courtroom setting. This says more about our lack of defense, a lack of a defense attorney than it does anything about whether we or whether or not we are better or worse than anybody else. We feel vulnerable and we feel like we've got to defend ourselves and we look for somebody to put down. And the thing that is in all of us to always quick to point out flaws of others, that thing in us that's so prone to burn bridges with others stems from, is connected to, is rooted in our lack of trust and rest in God. And in making this connection, Jesus explained the gaps in our relationship with others by exposing the gaps in our relationship with God. That He says you treat other people that way because there's an issue with how much or how much you do not trust God. Come on, why are we tempted to try to demean others? Why are we tempted to demean how others do things when they aren't trying to impose how they do it on us? Why do we feel like we're in competition with everybody all the time? Why do we feel like we have to defend our way when somebody else is promoting their way? Why do churches not get along? Why do Christians who disagree with each other in the slightest things not get along? Why do we build walls when we have so many reasons we could work together? Why do we cut people down when we realize they disagree with us on one little thing, even though we didn't know it about them at first, and we liked them until we found out? Could it be that we are so insecure in our foundation? Could it be that we trust in ourselves so much, and we're always trying to justify ourselves so that when we feel like we're threatened, we must treat others with contempt, if only to exalt ourselves higher? Could it be? And maybe you're thinking, Justin, are you saying that if I was resting and trusting in Christ for my justification, then I would be okay with people who are different than me? You mean to tell me that if I was really trusting in Jesus as my solid rock, I wouldn't be so tempted to wall people off and disassociate with them when they're not like me? Yes, that's exactly what I believe that Jesus is trying to tell us today. If only we did this with other Christians, our world might be so much better. The kingdom would be so much better. If we weren't so worried about this group gaining ground and that group overshadowing ours, we could accomplish so much good. But instead, we're left fending for ourselves and defending ourselves over and against the others. And we act as if we're in the pre-civilized era. And the only choice we have is to slay the person closest to us and build our case on top of them. Maybe you don't believe me. But isn't this the oldest story in the book? Maybe second oldest. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought the first fruit of his flock and of the fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering. Because Abel offered an offering that said, God, you are the one who makes righteous. You are the one that has given me a good standing. It's in you and you alone that I lay my trust. 
But Cain brought his work. Cain brought something he had did, so God would honor it as somehow an accomplishment. And the response was that Cain, God had no regard for Cain's offering, and Cain was angry, and his face fell. In the Hebrew, for that means he became ugly. That's not what it means. But because he had a fallen face, he began to behave and do ugly things. And God came to Cain before it got too bad. Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary for you. Listen, Cain. That smug look on your face where you always want to look down on somebody else because you want to feel better about yourself, it's not going to go away. You're going to fight this all of your life. You better get this and get this right right now. If you trust in anybody but me to make you righteous, you'll spend your life making enemies and you'll be all alone. And you'll be lost. Cain said, I don't need that advice. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Because no one could be better than him if they were dead. Do you see the connection? Cain trusted in himself, and a byproduct of that was insecurity and contempt toward the only other person around his brother, and listen, isn't it exhausting living in a world where you're always sizing people up? Where you're always thinking, hmm, I wonder what's wrong with that person. What do I not like about him or her? And just notice how soon in your conversations or situations do you start noticing or taking notes of flaws in whoever is opposite of you? And how often has it been where you meet someone and you like them or you think they're a genuinely nice person, but oh, they're a Republican or oh, they're a Democrat. Or all oh, they're divorced. Or all oh, they're gay. And all of a sudden you start walking back, oh, I can't be friends with you. I can't associate myself with you. What, is, what causes that? What causes us to start tallying up things that they have got going against them? Because there's something in me and there's something in you that wants to build our case. Why do we do that? What benefit is there in doing that? Could it be that it says more about us than it does about them? Could it be that we're missing something that could change the way we look at them? And even if they ever or never change, we might change and we might be different for the better. Jesus identifies both issue and solution in this parable. We are far too often resting in and standing on our own merit or attempting to anyways rather than trusting in God. We are constantly giving bait from the enemy to shift our faith, faith from Jesus to something else. From we're always tempted to supplant our faith. And I give you the loudest of warnings this morning. Don't fall for the bait to leave the altar and sit on Jesus' throne. Don't take the bait to leave a place of humility and dependence and sit on a throne that belongs to one man and act as if because we haven't done that or we are better than them that somehow, someway, we've got something to stand on when we don't. And we shift our faith, we shift our allegiance out of Jesus into ourselves, trusting in our good. 
goes hand in hand with pointing out and condemning someone else's bad. And listen, no matter how good you might can be, it's not enough to satisfy even your own standards. So we scrape and we claw to somehow make ourselves feel better. This is just the enemy's way of keeping us from Jesus. And he's good at it. So I want to give you something that will save you from so many debates and so many discussions. We are not justified by a what, but by a who. Not, we are not justified by what we believe or what we practice or how we behave or how we worship. We are justified by who we trust in. We are not justified by how we live, how we vote, how we dress, how we talk. We are justified by who, who, who we trust in. Jesus alone justifies our souls. Not because of what we do or how we do it. He is who that we, justifies us and what He did makes us righteous. And we are so often and so prone to wander from this place, aren't we? It, you know what's even more fascinating to me? If the church, if just professing believers stripped away all the junk and we got back to our cornerstone, Peter's confession... You are the Christ. And this is how it all got started. You're the Christ, Son of the living God. And Jesus said, and on this rock, I will build my church. If we went back here, we would settle so many of our differences and disputes. We'd wake up from all these human tendencies that have crept into our faith. Pillars that try to differentiate us from one another and be over and against the other. We, would call, we, we should all be and are in fact equal at the foot of the cross. At the cornerstone of Christ. I'm not saying that there isn't a right way and there isn't a wrong way. But if we are righteous, right will come. And I believe there's a right way to handle morals and doctrine and sacraments and eschatology and the way the church functions. Believe me, the word is clear on most of those. But, but none of that stuff makes me more righteous. Only Jesus makes me righteous. In the same way with how we relate to the world, we aren't righteous because we live right. We're righteous because Jesus alone got it right. We're righteous in Him. Not in ourselves. Even if you're squeaky clean and never sin. It's because of Jesus you live the way you live. If it's good at all. And more importantly, He has given us the desire to be better. Moralism doesn't save. Jesus alone saves. So if you're trusting in your good, that's no good. The only good work is the work of the good Lord. The evidence of our salvation isn't what we do. It's what Jesus did. And maybe the reason we're so insecure, maybe the reason we're so unsettled is because we've never trusted in Jesus. We've never anchored our faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus did. We've just been religious enough to get by. And we've knocked enough people down that we thought were worse than us. And we felt better about ourselves. But you don't have peace, do you? And that's what matters. Romans 5 tells us, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have access by faith into His grace in which we stand. 
The only way to be saved from constantly trying to prove our worth, from constantly trying to prove others' unworthiness, is in Jesus. And church, if we just got this, if we just settled here and never left, we would have peace with God and we would find peace with others. Because we wouldn't see others as stepping stones. We'd rest in Jesus, our cornerstone. A lot of us were like that guy hanging out at the pool of Bethesda who was waiting for someone to help him and he kept blaming the other sick people as to why he never got better. And Jesus walked up and asked this kind of insensitive question one day. Do you want to get better? Do you want to be healed? Maybe that's the question we need to ask today. Do we want to be well? If we retrace our trust, is it in God or is it in ourselves? How we treat one another may very well reveal... How we think about each other may very well reveal where our trust truly is. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this provocative, convicting message from your word. Father, we're going to come out and sing Cornerstone because Cornerstone is all about how Jesus is our bedrock. He is our foundation. He alone is our Savior. Father, maybe there's some people here today that they've seen the connection between how they treat people, how they think about people, how they look at people. And maybe they've realized that that's a connection, that's a result of how they have related to you or how they have not trusted in you. And Lord, if you've opened someone's eyes, God, help us to bring, come to a place of humility like that tax collector did. Where he said, Father, forgive me, I'm a sinner. God, I pray that you would bring a, a, a spirit of humility and a spirit of peace into our house today. And if there's anybody in the house, God, that they treat others with contempt. They look down on people. And they're always trying to build their case to feel better about themselves. Lord, could you just free them from that? Could you just release them from that bondage of trying to prove their own worth when Jesus has already proven His and He's already died for them and they can rest and stand in His blood and His blood alone and no, nothing will ever get in between you and them again. Would you do that, God? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.